John chapter 17 is where we're going to be, verses 1, 1 through 5. Here's what the word says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him, that's the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This ends the reading of God's holy infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of God, God stand forever. You may be seated, though. To give you some context to what we just read, in John chapter 13, Jesus uh, is gathering with his disciples for the Last Supper, the, what's called the Lord's Supper, going to celebrate Passover together. It's an eventful gathering. In fact, much of the uh, book of John or the gospel of John centers around this evening where Jesus gathers at the supper with his disciples. He washes the feet there. Jesus, Judas leaves to betray Jesus. Peter is confronted about his future denial of Jesus. And then Jesus dives into a, a, a lengthy, one of the most lengthy teachings we have in all the scriptures, a direct teaching by Jesus. He's about to be arrested and executed, but he has some famous last words that he's going to share with them before they head out to the garden that night. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus shares and teaches with his disciples. He tells them what's about to come. He tells them of his upcoming death. He tells them about, after that, how there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that he, he's going to leave them and prepare a place for them, and he will return for them. And he tells them that in this world, they will know grave difficulty. And he concludes this discourse with this. In this world, you will have tribulation, but do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. That's the end of chapter 16. Three chapters of discussion and teaching about what's going to come. And now we come to chapter 17, where Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, suddenly stops and pauses and he prays. He prays. And he prays so that his disciples can hear him and so they can listen in, so that you and I can listen in. My most cherished memory as a child is walking into my parents' bedroom each morning. And usually, almost without exception, it's, at least it seems to my own memory of it, is they would be on their knees praying next to their beds. And in those early hours of the morning, you know, when your little body is still warm and your mind is still fuzzy, I would crawl into their bed and get into their blankets while they were on the side of the bed praying, and I would listen in to them as they talked to their God, as they met with their Father. It's my most cherished memory. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. It's the real Lord's Prayer. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer for the last couple of months, but that is the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught. It could be actually better called the Disciples' Prayer. This is actually the prayer that Jesus prayed. 
And the disciples are given audience. They get to hear Jesus pray, and so do we. We get to come into our Father's room, and we are given this unbelievable opportunity to hear the members of the Trinity speaking to one another. What many people consider this passage to be one of the holy of holies of the Bible, in which we are admitted into the very presence where the Son speaks to the Father. And we hear what he has to say. Jesus talks to the Father, and we're allowed to listen in. And so there's three parts. The whole chapter 17 is is one long prayer. It's actually fairly short when it comes to prayers, but it's one chapter. It's the longest prayer we have on record of Jesus. And the passage in the chapter can be broken down and simply the three in one way. It's this way, which is Christ prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Then he prays for his disciples in verses 16 through, or 6 through 19. And then he prays, prays for all those who would hear the testimony of his disciples and come to faith in him over the centuries. And we see that in verses 20 through 26. But if we will listen in, we have the opportunity for the next couple of weeks to listen in as Jesus prays to the Father. And what we're going to focus on and what we're going to see is this. And if you listen, as children, listen to this conversation, it will change you. Not just your prayers, but it will change your very being. Because what we get here in this is the curtain is pulled back and we get some unbelievable, almost unfathomable truths about the Godhead. and About his mission in this world. See, in this chapter, we get to hear the Lord of the universe give voice to the deepest longings of his heart. The deepest desires of God are communicated in this text. And the prayer begins with Jesus' greatest desire. In fact, it's the greatest desire of God, of, the, of our Trinitarian God, and that is what? It is the glory of God. As great as your salvation is, the greatest desire of Jesus and of the Father and of the Spirit is his own glory. This will be a sermon that builds, and it's not going to be an easy one. This is, we're running in the depths, in the heights of Trinitarian theology this morning and the interaction between the three members of the Trinity. And that is not usually easy to illustrate and easy to take hold of. And so I need you to listen closely, and I'll do my best we're going to have three points to begin this morning in which each of these three points are going to build and do interchange with one another, but they're going to build towards a fourth point in which we're going to look at the implications of Jesus' prayer for glory. But let's look at the first three points to begin. We're going to simply walk through the text. First, I'm going to show you this morning why or the meaning for why Jesus prays for glory, the meaning of Jesus' prayer for glory. And this is going to seem rather narrow, but it's important that we lay some, some, some foundation early on. In understanding this petition, we, we are confronted with an early problem if we're actually thinking about it. And actually, if we think about this idea of the word glory, I would say if you were to ask the average Christian what glory means, they would hymn and haul. And they would say, you know, like, we're supposed to, you know, like, glorify God, like. And God is lots of glory, Isn't that great? God is glorious. We don't actually, it's like the word holy. We don't necessarily know what it means. It's difficult to actually put a definition. Now, we can give a very general definition of God's glory. Here it is. God's glory is simply the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is God's holiness 
the, the, his otherness, the thing that he is, we have love, God has love, but his love is completely other and separate than our love. It is beyond comprehension. And so it is his holy love being displayed. His glory is the display of his holiness. It is the display of all of his characteristics and all of his attributes. It, the prophet Isaiah actually puts these two things of holiness and glory together. He says this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, And one called to another, these are angels, and they said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. What is his glory? It is the manifestation of the holiness, that holy, holy, holiness that they are singing of. It is the going public of God's holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness, his beauty on display for the world to see. That is the glory of God. But here, even here, a perfectly correct general definition of the glory of God, it's difficult to make sense of with these verses, if we're listening. Because in the first five verses here of John 17, there is almost a conflict or something. Can, it's confusing in the way it seems to talk about the glory of Christ. Well, when we see this in verse 5, if you look at your Bible very closely there at verse 5, Jesus is claiming that he had a glory with the Father beforehand, that he has had a glory with the Father for all of eternity, that Jesus possessed a certain kind of glory before the incarnation. And yet we also see what is assumed in verse 5 is that he had that glory past tense. And what we see is, as Ed read earlier from Philippians is that Jesus actually, the teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus in some way, shape, or form set aside his glory. He emptied himself of his likeness to God when he came to earth. So you see the difficulty. He had glory. Then he set aside glory. And yet we also see in verse 4 that Jesus gives glory and is, displays the glory of God in this world in the midst of his incarnation. And therefore, it is this kind of difficult, if you actually was able to follow that, here's the question. How can this be? How can Jesus have possessed God's glory, then renounced his glory, while at the same time still giving evidence of that which he supposedly renounced? How could he have glory and yet give up that glory and yet still display the glory of God's? Well, the answer is found in which the two senses in the Bible in which it speaks about God's glory. The most often used way refers to God's, simply God's character. Is any manifestation of God's character. When Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth, it says in verse 4, I brought you, Father, glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He is saying this, that by my ministry in this world, I am manifesting, I am showing to the world how great your character is. I'm showing to the world how great the character of God the Father is. In fact, in, for example, at the end of the wedding uh, miracle at wedding of Canaan, when Jesus turns the water into wine, he actually says there in John chapter 2, verse 11, that this miracle manifested the glory of Jesus. It was telling us something about the glory of who this Jesus is and the glory of who this God is and his, his character and his attributes. And when the disciples beheld his glory, it says, it means that they beheld his character, the beauty of who he was. That Jesus is loving and Jesus is righteous and Jesus is just and Jesus is kind and Jesus is good. And God is these things and Jesus actually displays them for all the world to see. This is the aspect of God's glory that Jesus retained during his earthly ministry. But what of the glory that Jesus had before the incarnation? What's the glory that he set aside? 
Well, here we have to dive in a little bit into some studies in the Jewish thoughts. The Jewish understanding and the, the studies of the Old Testament if you're to, and the rabbinical writings, you would see that the, they understood that the outward manifestation of God's presence was believed to involve light, radiance, or they call it glory. A, a radiance and a light that was so brilliant that no man could approach it. For example, we'll see this all over the place in the Old Testament in the various stories and accounts and writings of of who God is. But look at this in Psalm 104, verse 2. It says this. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord of my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. And here's what it says. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. You may have heard it from the song, Clothe Yourself. In majesty. That this is referring to God's glory, the manifestation of who he is. We have a graphic example of this in the case of Moses. Remember, Moses goes up on the Mount of Sinai and he says to God, Show me your glory. And God hides it in the face of the rock and says, I'll simply show you the shadow of my glory. And it is so radiant and so glorious that it makes Moses so radiant and so glorious that when he comes down the mountain and sees the people, they go, We can't see your face. We're going to burn up if we see your face. They had to be shielded from Moses' reflective radiance of the shadow of God's radiance. You see, light was associated with the cloud of glory that overshadowed the wilderness temple and that entered into the, ta- the temple uh, that Solomon built. And the idea is found throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there's a word for it that they gave to it. It's not in the Old Testament, but it's the word that old rabbinical scholars gave to this display of God's light and God's glory in the world. It's called his Shekinah glory. You ever heard that word? And what it's this, it's this is what Jesus had, and this is what Jesus laid aside, which is it is the it is the presence of God's glory unveiled, fully recognized, and enjoyed holiness of Jesus. That's what the Shekinah glory of Jesus is. It is the fully unveiled and fully recognized glory of Jesus that if you were to actually run up against, you would burn up and die. That it is too radiant and too powerful for us to be able to come into the presence of. And this is what Jesus had from eternity past. But in order to come and dwell with mankind, what did he have to do? He laid aside that Shekinah glory and took on what? His humiliation. He took on flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So this is what Jesus had. He came to manifest the attributes the character of God while at the same time laying aside the full radiance The unveiled, fullest expression of all God is. He had to lay it aside so that he might come into our presence. Now, how does this understand the meaning of Jesus' petition for glory here? You went to sleep in the midst of that, come back around. You see, before Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus possessed the glory of God in both of these senses. He possessed the fullness of God's attributes and character in the inward sense, but he also possessed the fullness of God's outward display, his light in unveiled glory. It shone and shone like the sun. So what Jesus is doing in his incarnation, he laid aside. Nevertheless, he retained the, his God's glory in the first sense. And so when he comes and he says to the Father, so Jesus is praying to, for God the Father to glorify him. Jesus is saying, Father and Spirit, shine a bright light upon what I do so that the, Lord, the world may know the glory and beauty of my character. He's saying that. But he's also saying this. 
He says this in verse 5. Restore me to the fullest expression in the radiance of your glory. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he is peeling back the veil and letting us get get a glimpse of what was there before time. And so Jesus is praying, Father, I was with you in heaven where I shared with you in the Shekinah glory of all of eternity and the angels sang to us and we had perfect bliss between us and the Spirit. And I set aside that bliss and I set aside that radiance so that I might come and take on flesh and come into the sinful world so that I may accomplish what you sent me to do. And now that I've accomplished what you sent me to do, reinstate that glorious, that Shekinah glory to me. Bring me back up to my throne room. Bring me back up into the fullest experience of intimacy that we had with one another in which we dwelled in full recognition, unveiled recognition of the glory of one another. This is what Jesus is praying for here. The meaning of praying for glory. Glorify me, Father. In other words, bring me back to the place where I dwell with you in unveiled glory, when you recognize my unveiled glory, when we dwelled intimately together. So that's the first part, the meaning of God's glory, of Jesus' glory, why he prays that, the meaning behind his prayer. But second, we also have to see the reason for it. The reason for Jesus' prayer for glory. When Jesus prays, what does he say in verse 1? Glorify me. End? Is that how it ends? No. So that I might glorify you, Father. We are tapping into a deep truth, or as C.S. Lewis might put it in his own language, a deep magic. I want you to see here that we are getting a glimpse into the inner workings of the love between the various members of the Trinity. From eternity past, we have a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this Trinitarian God have engaged in a mutual love and glorification of each other. That is what they've been doing for all of eternity. It is a relationship of mutual glorification. They are always glorifying each other. And we see this in various pockets throughout the New Testament. For example, I'm just going to run through a couple verses for you. Jesus says this in John 8, verse 50. He said, Yet I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And of the Father, the judge of all things, glorifies me. He says it again in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Whenever you see hour in John, it's referring to his death and his resurrection. I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Then in John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, it says there that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own, his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And then we already read this in our worship order this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's glorified Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet why does God the Father glorify God the Son? Well, how does it end? To the glory of God the Father. There is a circular self 
mutual glorification amongst the members of the Trinity. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And around and around and around and around we go for all of eternity, past and present and future. The members of the Trinity are engaged in a mutual circle of affection and glory amongst the Godhead. And this is what we see. We get a glimpse of this in verse 5. John 17, 5, he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you from all of eternity. The mutual glorification that has been going on. Restore me to that place where we spend all of eternity telling each other how glorious we are. This is what God is doing and this is where Jesus wants to be restored to. Now, here's, there's incredible implications of this for our relationship with God. And in fact, there are incredible implications for why even God made the world. Do you know why God made the world? Why God make you? Is it because he didn't have any worshipers? And he just needed to make a few? He needed to create a, like a cheerleading section on earth? You know, we're, we're on earth with little pom-poms and on a cute little dress. He said, that's what I need. I need people to sing and play harps. Is that why God made us? No, he, he had himself. The Father had the Son and the Spirit to worship him. And the Son had the Spirit and the Father to worship him. And so on and so forth. Was God lonely? Was God not getting enough glory? No, he doesn't need us to glorify him. He doesn't need us to worship him. No, he had already received glory from the other members of the Trinity. He had, in fact, he had the angels to sing his praises, and if he wanted more beings to glorify and praise him and sing in a huge choir in heaven, he could have just made more angels. So why does he make you and I? Well, the answer almost by deduction is this. He makes it because he wants to communicate his love and joy. He wants to share it with other beings. He made you, he made you so that he had to share his glory with other beings. It's, it's like this, this understanding of this, this is a, the creative impulse in the design that is actually reflected most beautifully in a right sense amongst his image bearers. That a husband and wife look at each other and they go, I love you so much, I want to create more of you. That I love you so much that I want to create more beings that know how great you are. That's, that's the, imp the impulse, the divine impulse that is reflected in us as image bearers. That he creates because he wants to create image bearers, those who look like the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And those who actually enjoy the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And which the Father can look at the Son and say, to all of us who are mankind, and say, isn't he awesome? And the son looks at the father and says, man, isn't he awesome? And they both look at the spirit and they say, isn't he awesome? And we, for all of eternity, get to come in into that embrace, like a child who's caught between the squeeze of a mom and dad. The members of the Trinity are glorifying one another by sharing the love and affection they have for one another, and they bring the people that they have created to come share in that love and affection with them. This is God's passion for God. And yet he brings you along. See, Jesus came into this world to invite you into this ancient love story between the members of the Trinity. He created you so that you would, and this is a very important word, know God's love. That you would know and share in the members of the Trinity their love for one another. That they would love you as they love each other and you would go, oh my goodness. And that you would love them in the way that the members of the Trinity love each other. And you would go, oh, I give glory and honor and worship to you. And you're invited in. I know this is ethereal, seemingly opaque. It's beyond us. It's supposed to be. 
And so Jesus asked that the Father glorify him so that Jesus could be restored to the place of glory that he had with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity. And being restored to that place is to be restored to the fullest expression of mutual glorification. But then Jesus gives us the basis of his request to be restored to full glory. Why does Jesus, what does he say? What's the reasoning? What's his kind of defense? Father, this is why you should glorify me. That brings us to our third point, the basis of Jesus' prayer for glory. It says this at the beginning of verse 2. It says in verse 1, Father, God, glorify me so that I might glorify you. Why? Since, at the beginning of verse 2, since, it's the Greek words for since, it has it under the understanding of the definition of just as, or on the basis of this, or because of this. Because of what? Verses 2 through 4. Glorify me so that I might glorify you because of because you have given me authority over all flesh. This is verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given, and this is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, what is, what is the basis for Jesus saying that he deserves the Father's glory? It's because it's the basis of it is that he has been given authority to give eternal life. And that he has accomplished all that is necessary to give eternal life. The authority that Jesus has been given by the Father is, the, is what we call the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. A covenant to save a people of God's own out of the destruction of sin. Once again, we are, the veil is being pulled back. And we're seeing there's, there's this, in little pockets of scriptures, we almost see these like agreements between the heart and the heart of God amongst the members of the Trinity that God will save for himself a people. And God the Father looked at God the Son and says, I will give you a people, and I'm going to give you the authority to go save them. And here, this is what's referred to by theologians as the covenant of redemption. You've read passages in the scriptures like this. That before the foundations of the world, he knew you. Before the foundations of the world, he predestined you. Well, guess what? If he predestined you to be saved, no matter what you understand about that term, you also have to understand that he also predestined the means by which he was going to save you, which is through whom? The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Which means that before the foundation of the world, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit got together and said this, how are we going to redeem a people? And how are we going to bring glory to ourselves? For the redemption of a people, and how are we going to go about doing that? We're going to do it through Jesus, the Son of God, coming down and accomplishing salvation for those people. And what is that salvation? What is eternal life, it says? It gives it to us in verse 3. He's going to come and accomplish all that is necessary for us to have eternal life. And what is eternal life? To know God. To know God. Remember, why has God created you? Has he created you just so... You can worship him. Yes, he has done that. But ultimately, he's created you so that you might know and share in his love and his glory for all of eternity. That is salvation. That is eternal life, to know God. And then it says in verse 4, that by accomplishing all that is necessary for us to have eternal life, Jesus glorifies the Father. Do you see the circularity of this? It's a dance. The Father, Jesus says, who does he save? He says, all whom the Father has given me. All, he has given you authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. The Father gives a gift to the Son. You know whose that gift is? It's you and me. 
And then the Son does all that is necessary to save them so that he might then give us as a gift to the Father. And how does he accomplish that? And it says in verse 4, in accomplishing that, and accomplishing eternal life, and all that is necessary for us to come and know God the Father, Jesus has actually given glory to God the Father. And here's what I want you to see is this, is that in this work, in this work of Jesus, it redounds, it communicates the fullest attributes of God's glory in this world. It reveals more perfectly and more clearly how perfect God's character is, how wonderful his character is. It means the cross of Jesus Christ proclaims more perfectly than any other Bible verse in all the scriptures that God is a perfectly sovereign God. It, it claims and communicates more perfectly than any other passage of scripture the beautiful the glory of God's justice, the glory of God's righteousness and his wisdom and his love. You see, Jesus is glorified by the display of his attributes on the cross and he glorifies himself and he glorifies the Father. He manifests the beauty of his holiness. You see, at the cross we see God's sovereignty and the way in which Christ's death was planned out and promised and then executed perfectly to win our salvation. At the cross we see God's wisdom, the unfathomable riches of the wisdom of God that he would plan out this kind of salvation. We see God's great justice that while he loves us, he still punishes sin. He doesn't know that any sin, not a single sin in this world, goes unpunished by God. And on the cross, we see his power to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, to conquer death. And on the cross, what do we see? We see his perfect love. His perfect love is gloriously displayed at the cross. The cross is the climactic hour. It is the greatest hour in history. And there is no greater place to see the glory of God than at the cross of Jesus Christ. But here's what I want you to see that is so deeply profound and is the combination of all three of these points being brought down together. I want you to see it's a wonder of wonders that God in the salvation of sinners through the atoning work of Jesus has intrinsically bound up the glory of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Let me put it very simply, as old one Puritan writer put it, is that God is glorified primarily. The chief way in which God is glorified is through the salvation of sinners. Look at the cyclical nature of this mutual glorification. I talked about it just a second ago. The Father gives to the Son a people, therefore giving him glory. The Son, therefore, goes and does all that is necessary to win eternal life for them. So that, and by doing so, he gives glory to the Father. And because he has given glory to the Father in that way, he then looks to the Father and says, Now give glory to me for accomplishing what you asked me to do. And around and around and around we go. The Son glorifies the Father by doing all that is necessary for us to know God to be in intimate communion with God, and the Father glorifies the Son because the Son has accomplished that task. Do you understand? This is the crazy thing. That God has wrapped his display of his glory. That each member of the Trinity has wrapped their display, their worship of the glory of the other members of the Trinity around your salvation. That the, the primary thing that displays God's glory is your salvation. The primary means by which the Father, while the reason why the Father glorifies the Son is because he's accomplished your salvation. The primary means by which the Son glorifies and gives worship to the Father is that he accomplished your salvation and then gives you back to the Father. 
It all seems to be centered around what he does in saving us. Do you see this? God doesn't need this. For all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have been wrapped up in a worshiping embrace, and yet he's chosen to bring you into the midst of it. It is, it is beyond words. The members of the Trinity have made their primary act of worship for one another the salvation of your soul. This is the Trinitarian God has bound up his glory. The God had the Father, Son, and Spirit have bound up their mutual loving glorification of each other with your salvation so that you might become to brought into the knowledge of God. This is why he made you, to know God, to be in intimate fellowship with him, and this is why he saved you, to know God, have eternal life with him. It is simply stunning and unfathomable. And if, and if we could grasp it, if this truth we're not simply something that says, okay, that's a little bit beyond me. That's a little bit overly ethereal. That's this glory language. That just kind of feels like this kind of mist and light, and I can't get there. But if you were actually to meditate on it and allow your mind to be blown by it, if this truth this becomes a, a weight that is heavy upon your life, it will actually change everything. This is the implications of Jesus' prayer for glory. It changes everything when you get this. For one, it changes the way you pray. It changes the way you pray. It changes why you pray and it changes what you pray. The purpose of prayer is for the same purpose for why God made you. Why did God make you? To know him, to delight in him, to be delighted in by him. And therefore, what is the purpose of prayer? It's opening up your heart, opening up your soul to him to experience an interaction that is deep and that is intimate to be known by God and to know God perfectly. This is eternal life that they would know God. And prayer is your daily foretaste of what you get to have in heaven. An intimate communion with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus' basis of receiving glory from God is that you would know God. And the reason the Father glorifies the Son is because he has brought you to know God. And therefore, if the main means of worshiping God amongst the members of the Trinity is to bring a people in who would be known and know God, then therefore, what should be the main means by which you worship God? To make it your greatest desire to be known by him and to know him intimately. And the greatest prayers of the New Testament, this is actually what they bring out. Paul has two fabulous prayers in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read them to you. See if you can just, it's the type of prayer that we should be praying. That falls in line with Jesus' prayer here in verses 1 through 5. And one, the first one is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Here's what Paul prays. Paul prays essentially that the greatest prayer he has for us is that God would show us himself. Here's how he says it there. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. What does that give you? Intimate connection. Give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Knowledge again. What does he want? He wants you to know God, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and in saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What's he want? He wants for you to know God. To know God through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know the immeasurable riches of God's love for you. He continues on another prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It says this, 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, caught up in the Trinity. You're in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and another love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is what God wants. This is how Paul prays. What's the prayer? It's Moses' prayer. Show us your glory. May we know you and all the excellencies of who you are and particularly how you've shown yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not praying for, you, for the things we pray for, is he? We show up to God and we say, and it's okay, he gives us the, the right to do so. We've, we've dealt with it in the past couple weeks. But we tend to pray primarily about our changing our circumstances. When God wants us to show up into prayer and get and say, God, more than anything else in this world, I want you. I want you, I need you, I want to gaze upon the glory of who you are. This is why David says it, right? Psalm 27, verse 4, the one thing I ask is to see the glory of God. It'll change your life. It'll change your prayers. It'll change, actually, it'll change actually how you view life. It'll change the joys and sorrows of your life. For example, I mean, there's a great book on understanding glory and its effect upon your life. It's called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And it's a book that actually began first as a sermon, in which Lewis preached this sermon in 1941. There were some serious things going on in England in 1941. But in June of 1941, he preaches at an evensong service at Oxford University, and he preaches the whole sermon about the glory of God. And he says this. Here's what he says. That everyone has the experience of coming to something, whether it be the music you enjoy, the food you love, the scenery that moves you, the sports that throw you, even achievement through work and calling. And he says that you get these stabs of joy. You ever experience that, a stab of joy where you go, I just touched something. That was so glorious and so happy and it elicited something in my spirit that I've never experienced before. Lewis calls them stabs of joy. And it was these stabs of joy, Lewis says in, his own, in that book, it's what led him to Jesus. Because he said he would bump into these stabs of joy and they would slay him with their delight in which he would go, I want to experience that again. But he said every time, he said, I would go to that thing again. He said whether it was writing a particular type of book or going to a particular pub or enjoying a particular type of evening with friends and he would say, I want to live in that thing that stabbed me and I, I can't get to it anymore. It stabbed me once with its great joy. But he's saying this, is that the reason why you can't get to it is it's never meant to be an end in of itself. He says, in those stabs of joys, those momentary little reflections and bits of joy in this life are merely momentary reflections of a glory that is behind it. And that in those stabs of joy that you're encountering the glory of God. He says this, but if you try to get to the thing, thinking that the glory and stab of joy originated with that thing that gave you that joy then we will be turned into an idol. We give our hearts over to experiencing that joy. Then Lewis says, you must understand that the joy is coming through the food and through the drink and through the work and through the friendship. And then he says this, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? And he says, perhaps I am. He's trying to like, I'm trying to just kind of use fancy words to try to convince you that God is good. A spell, whether it's true or not, it's just a spell. 
Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? He says, perhaps, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as they are for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us. And what is worldliness? It's to take all those places and things that gives us stabs of joy that were meant to bring us to God, and yet they actually poisoned our souls because we turned them into idols. And the point that Lewis is trying to get across is this, is that when you get the stab of joy, the friend, the music, the deep connection of a lover, in those moments, what comes through was not the object itself, but what you tasted of in that moment was the glory of God. And the way of change, the way of being transformed of being set free from the enchantments of this world is to fall under the spell of God's glory. To say, I had this great encounter with a lover. I had this great meal and this great drink and this great evening with friends and I experienced something of joy is to actually look upward and say, oh my goodness, you're glorious. Let me put it maybe put more simply or less esoterically for some of you. It's the way another old preacher, a Scottish preacher, and they have a tendency to say things very directly. And he said this, that what we need is the expulsive power of a new affection. That when you love the things of this world too much, what we need is actually to have something that we love far more to drive those things out of our life. What he's saying is this, is there's the Hebrew word for glory is weightiness or heaviness. And what we need is the expulsive power of all who God is, the weight of his character and his glory. We need that to be pressed in upon us. And in seeing the glory of God, you are transformed because God is weighty. God is weighty. To know God is to come to terms with all aspects of his weightiness and his heaviness. All the manifestations of his glory. Let me see if I can help you understand this by describing it negatively and then giving it positively. Let me see. If you believe that God is wise and loving, if you're a Christian, you believe that. But if you're living in worry and anxiety right now, what does that show? The issue there is that you have a glory problem. If you're worried, even though you believe in God's wisdom and his love for you, your real problem is that his wisdom and love for you, the glory of his wisdom and his love, hasn't hit you. It's not heavy enough. It means that you're worried about your finances, and it's because your finances are the thing that is weighing you down more than the glory of God. Something in your life is more weighty, gives you more joy or promises a greater joy than the glory of God. If you're worried and anxious, then the best prayer you can pray is this. Not, hey, will you give me more money for my bank account because that will solve my anxiety. It's no, no. It's show me your glory. It's, I want to know you, God, in the midst of my poverty. Would you show up in all of the manifestation of your gloriousness, that my heart may be awed by your power and your love and your affection? That's the prayer you pray. And how does that affect us? Well, it makes us, my goodness, we can defeat many, many things and stand up to many things. Here's the positive application. The negative is that there are things in your life that are too weighty, but what if God's glory is the thing that weighs the most at the center of your life and hearts? Great illustration of this is Eric's, Eric Little. You probably know the story of Eric Little from the movie Chariots of Fire. He is a great runner. In fact, was, going to, was seeking to become known as the world's fastest man at the 1924 Olympics until he finds out that the heats that he's going to run that lead up to the final, the heats of the 100-meter dash are going to happen on Sunday. It's on the Sabbath, and he decides that he won't run. 
And so he, he's, this news of this decision of his creates quite a stir. You see, England at the time was trying to, after World War I, was trying to reclaim some of his former glory. And there was great pressure upon Little by the racing and sporting authorities. And in fact, if you actually see the movie, there's one particular scene where he's called in to hang out with the Prince of England, one of the Princes of England. But Little won't budge. What's going on? That there is a weight of pressure of people who are coming into his life and saying, you have to do this. And Little says, no, I don't have to do this. I won't do this. Because he said this. What is it he believes about running? Because when I run, it's not your pleasure I feel. I don't run for your pleasure, Prince of Wales. When I run, I feel his pleasure. And which means this. I'll run when God calls me to run. Running doesn't own me. Your opinion of me doesn't own me. Olympic success doesn't own me. God is weightier in my life than the opinions of the people of England. And therefore, I will obey him. You're saying what joy and what freedom that would bring in your life? That if God was at the center, if he was the weight at the bottom of your heart, to feel the weightiness of all his goodness and all of his glory, to make, look at him and go, my goodness, what I want more than anything else is to feel your pleasure, to know you, to embrace you more than I need finances and more than I need their acceptance. I want you, God. And that is, that's what we call salvation when you come to that place. It's called eternal life. What's the definition of eternal life in verse 3? Is to know God. In other words, here's what eternal life is. Here's what, what God is through the work of Jesus Christ in that as they bound their glory up around you, they're bringing into you into an eternal existence where you come to know God more and more deeply. And do you think at the beginning of heaven you're going to know God fully, completely in that moment? No. Here's the beautiful thing is that we will spend all of eternity taking drives through the, a safari through the goodness and the glory of God's character. You'll spend all of eternity hiking on mountain trips that, that, that display to you the love of God and the power of God. This is what it is to know him. To know him in his glory, that is eternal life. In fact, that's life you can experience even now through prayer. And he gives us little tastes of it where he reminds us of his glory and what he did to bring us home to him. And that's why we come to the table this morning. Let's pray. And go to the table and celebrate what God has done to bring us back into relationship with him. Those who are serving communion could come forward. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, this, this is big and, well, this, the way we sang it earlier, it's a mystery. <laughs> come behold the wondrous mystery. And, and Lord, our hearts even now, Lord, it, they're, they're tugged on in a way that which this, this sounds right and this sounds good, but we have a hard time latching onto it. And so, Heavenly Father, by your spirit, I pray that now, as we come to reflect upon the glory of you in the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where your, your character and your attributes were most beautifully manifested in flesh and on earth, would the penny drop? Would we become, come to know this wouldn't just remain some ethereal thing up here that we kind of can't get a hold of, but by your spirit would we grasp it and be moved by the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. 
moved by the unfathomable mystery that you would wrap your giving of glory to one another in the Godhead around this act of saving us. It's unfathomable. It's a mystery. But would you bring it to bear upon our minds and our hearts? We pray through this table. And so we set it aside. The simple bread and the simple cup. You'd set aside and give us great grace. That it would be a means of tasting and seeing, of knowing your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.